Hey, I'm Scott. And I'm Chris. And this is Doxologic, where we help you think with your Bible. It is good to be back for another episode on Doxologic. We are with you now to go over some mailbag questions. Scott and Chris, how's it going? Oh, it's going great. It's good to have you back, Chris. Thank you. I mean, we did hold down the fort. I missed Bree was kind of in your place, and I thought she did an outstanding, outstanding (laughs) job. No surprise. Yep, no doubt at all. She really picked up. more than I left off, let's be honest. Yeah. So why am I here? Why am I back? You guys invited me back. That is a question. Yeah, I know. <laughs> it's actually the first question I was going to say. <laughs> <laughs> well, yes. uh, this why episode is... to tell you that you've been demoted. <laughs> this is Chris's final episode. Uh, Adding my name uh, to the intro. Is, yeah, is this CNN? Am I getting just fired like yeah, a CNN uh, anchor? Oh, was that too political, personal? Oh, uh, oh Chris. Left, right. Oh. We were laughing. Yeah, we were laughing. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Somebody got that joke in the audience. I appreciate it. It. The audience. Is, is this mic on? It's been off this entire time. <laughs> Anyways. That's funny. Here we are. You guys keep it fun. We try. All right, let's jump into these questions. The first one reads like this In light of 2 Samuel 12 and 13, is generational sin real? And if so, is it present post Calvary? Well, it's it, 12 and 13. 12 and 13. Yeah. Okay. yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Uh, I would say that, first of all, you want a good definition on generational sin. That would be the first kind of question um, to, to ask and answer is, what do they mean by generational sin? If you mean patterns of behavior passed down from the father to the children... Mm-hmm then I can definitely understand what they're talking about there. And I do see a pattern in that. And I think we can get some verses in that. I'm thinking of Exodus 34, for example, um, mm-hmm. Jeremiah 32, a couple different places. But um, if that's what we're talking about, yes. And Calvary didn't stop that pattern from taking place, generally speaking, mm-hmm. in terms of, you know, sin patterns being passed on. There, There is a sense in which, you know, I think we can all say that even on a practical level, your parents... Uh, rubbed off on you, yeah. Right, sure. you've got yeah. their DNA and flowing through you, and uh, and the way that our sin manifests itself is similar in some ways to the same sins of our parents, and yep. I think that's true even on going beyond Calvary. Mm-hmm. And there's no indication in the New Testament that that pattern, if that's what they're discussing, is um, you know, yeah. taking place. Well, what's laid out in twelve and thirteen? Well, yeah, you've got in chapter 12, uh, David's child uh, dies. Well, uh, Nathan comes to David. Nathan the prophet comes to David, gives him uh, the the parable basically uh, about the man who had many sheep and the man who had one. And uh, David gets all irate over the man who stole, uh, the, the rich man who stole the one sheep or one lamb uh, from the man. And, and Nathan says, you are the man Iconic. and all of this. Yes. And then uh, David's child dies in chapter 12. Chapter 13 is Amnon and Tamar, um, and that just horrible, horrible event in uh, how Amnon um, raped uh, Tamar, and then uh, you've got uh, Absalom murdering Amnon, so you have got a mess, a mess, a mess of family sin. What I think, um, so yes and amen on the patterns, the DNA, the the reality of certain proclivities, we want to call them weaknesses, but really just sin that we follow in our parents' footsteps, but also... Um, Scott, I wonder if the question 
is in part something like the pronouncement that um, the child would die. Is, is that what this person might be getting at? Like, are we still under a, well, are we under a threat that we're going to have a, a, a tie of this sin? Is God's going to judge that in the next generation in a tightly specific way? Uh, as opposed, you know, the, the child who ends up with a sickness and the parents end up, you know, believing that it's their wild past that like God is still inflicting punishment mm-hmm. by giving their next generation a the disease or things like this. And this is where people go sometimes from chapters like this. And I don't believe that we can, um, it's not appropriate to be tying those things together. This was revelation from God through Nathan about the King of Israel and this particular sin, how he had violated, um, Bathsheba causing Uriah's murder and all, all of that. Um, I think of the principle of sowing and reaping in this as well, oh, yeah. that the sowing of sin will cause a reaping, a harvest, sure. and that will have an impact on your children. Galatians and that is 6. A, yes, Galatians 6, a very somber warning, but it's not to tie together um, events like this. To That's not how you personalize this passage, just to say, I'm under a threat generationally because of my sin, that God's going to cause this sad, bad thing to happen to my mm-hmm. children. Yeah. Well, because there's a definition of generational sin, which yeah. is why I was like, we got to get a definition right. because there is this doctrine that talks about individuals inheriting the judgment for the sin of their ancestors. Mm. And that's kind of been an issue in this last COVID season with the Black Lives Matter thing and who's mm. responsible for sins of former generations. And there's almost been this idea that there's this white, if you're white, you're automatically guilty for something, whether you've done that or not, yeah. in terms of past actions committed against African-American people. But one of the passages that I think just to be clear on is really, really important is Ezekiel 18. And the entire chapter is basically the soul who sins shall die. Yeah. And I'll pull out just a couple verses, 18.4 and 18.5. When the Lord's talking, he says, Behold, all souls are mine. The soul of the Father as well as the soul of the Son is mine. The soul who sins shall die. If a man is righteous and does what is just and right, he is righteous, he shall surely live, declares the Lord God. And so you're going to be held accountable for your own sin. That being said, there is a warning, and like in Exodus chapter 20, in the midst of the Ten Commandments, Mm -hmm. that reads like this in verse 5, you shall not bow down uh, to idols, carved images, likenesses of anything that is in the heavens above or earth beneath or water under the earth. Don't bow down or serve them for I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God visiting the iniquities of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments and doing a little bit of work on that in seminary days. I know that that word visiting can sometimes also be translated as punishing, punishing the iniquities. And that is to say, There is a um, serious weight on this commandment not to deviate from this because you're not only setting yourself up for judgment if you walk out of line with this commandment, but you are setting up generations Mm -hmm. to suffer judgment as a result of bowing down to idols to the third and the fourth generation, right? And so more is at stake than simply your own personal life when you're the leader of a family, Mm -hmm. a clan, and you engage in this practice. Mm -hmm. So there's definitely a sense in which 
that can be passed down. And to the point you said, look at chapter 13 of Second Samuel. Let's go back and tie that together. What did those sins of his children mirror? It mirrored his own sins from the chapters before, especially right. with his sin with Bathsheba and his sin with Uriah, modeled in his kids. And that's not surprising. We think of Proverbs 22, 6. Train up a child in the way they should go, and in the end, they won't depart from it. If you don't think your training is in some part modeling, is in some part example, right. you're off. You're wrong. And your kids are going to pick up what you do and how you act. Um, and most certainly, don't be surprised when you see those patterns. In fact, I think one of the greatest ways I've been humbled as a parent and recognizing my own need to become more like Jesus is to see my own sin in my kids, mm-hmm. right? Them picking up patterns that I've apparently... Um, wasn't able to see in myself as well. But mm. when you see it in your kids, man, it's 2020 yeah. right? and you know, God help me. Yeah. And I need to address this not only in my own life, but I need to own this with my kid and apologize. What a gift of God's grace. Yep. Yeah. Amen. That's awesome. Thanks for unpacking that one guys. Yeah. Okay. Next question reads like this. How do I encourage my wife to read and pray more, especially when I ask and she gets defensive slash contentious. Genesis mm. three, anybody? Yeah. <laughs> Go on. Your desire will be contrary to your husband. <laughs> yeah. Huh. He wants you to do something. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I think that's a part of it. Right. Maybe. I don't I don't live in your home. Person well, who asked the question, but Yeah, I I would want to know 100% agree with that in especially in the sense of um there are proclivities in male um, sinful patterns and female sinful patterns that are picked up from Genesis going forward. Men either tend to overly dominate or yeah. tend to be quite passive and mm-hmm. you know laid back. And women want to rise up into that role and they want to rule over, right? Which mm-hmm. is that language from Genesis three that's then borrowed again in Genesis four, I think, verse six. And so there's something in that. And I would just say, I guess what I would want to know to answer the question specifically is what is behind does the husband know what is specifically behind the contentious Mm -hmm. or unwillingness in the wife Mm -hmm. because a lot of times it can seem noble but maybe there's something in the husband's leadership maybe there's um uh, this could be such as uh you pray but you don't live the christian life otherwise you know this is your claim Mm -hmm. to fame and yet nothing in the rest of your life shows me the love of christ at all and so i'm hesitant because i feel like i'm participating in a fraud for Mm -hmm. example Mm -hmm. or just a complete show like um you know maybe this is happening in small groups together or whatever who who knows if this is taking place but i do wonder what's causing that now it may not be the husband but that could be part of it yeah another part of it could be her own resistance to the lord like you well to your husband and to the lord as Mm -hmm. well um and just not perhaps being in a place of maturity where prayer is not only uh, commanded of us and responded to in obedience but also delighted and and pursued because of what a gift it is Mm -hmm. and so maybe it's a theological issue where we're helping them helping this this lady understand what is hers in Jesus Christ amidst Mm -hmm. amidst many many blessings is the blessing of prayer and the gift that prayer is Mm -hmm. and for any reason to forfeit that even if in the home you know um there, there are some inconsistencies with the husband. The fact that the husband wants to pray to me is such an opportunity to, to enter into that. But I would just say, if you're the husband too, and then I'll pass it on to you, Chris, is to say, 
maybe for a legitimate reason she is not there with you, why don't you be patient with her and pray on your own that she gets there? Mm -hmm. Even offering to pray for her, pray over her. Mm -hmm. And and if all of those are no's, just pray for her, right? You know, that's the one no Mm -hmm. that you can resist. If she says, no, don't pray over me, you know, that, that's probably, you need to, you need to listen to that. Right. But if it's, you know, don't pray for me at mm. all. I think that's where we can say, wait a minute. No, yeah. I want to be praying for you. And maybe that's how it starts to just win her over. Yeah. Um, the not wanting to pray or read with your husband could also be like an indication of like, just like, uh, like a lack of spiritual health in general. Maybe yeah. it's not like we, if we're not, if we read, therefore I think you're okay. Mm. You're doing okay. Cause we're reading and praying together. Yes. I think those are like helpful measurements, but not always, or maybe you need to do some digging and find out if there's something else going on. Yeah. I think mm. that could be helpful. Did you, I just want to address it. Clearly, yep. ask me ask the question one more time. How do I encourage my wife to read and pray more, especially when I ask and she gets defensive, contentious? Okay, yeah, I. I um, That's not even actually really saying together. Right. How yeah. do I get her to do it more? Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think there are a number of questions that some that you can ask yourself, and some that you need to s- sensitively, to the best of your ability, enter into dialogue with her about just. Yeah, what's going on? Where is this from? Uh, here's what I'm sensing. Uh, the humility of, hey, correct me where I'm, correct me if I'm wrong. Mm-hmm. But here's what I'm sensing. I'm sensing a resistance. I'm sensing closed off. I'm sensing these things as opposed to why are you so fill in the blank. Yep. Uh, that is an immediate defensive posture coming from an accusation. All these things, but to, to enter in with questions, ready to listen, and when you want to uh, pronounce your view point you you do it humble enough to say hey like i'm open to hearing what you think about this but here's the here is my perception so i I would argue there's a lot of questions and listening that needs to be done and then to your point scott the one thing that she certainly won't be able to get you to stop doing will be at least pray for her um and see what the lord would uh, would do and I, i would i would wonder uh not to um go down the like kind of, I don't know, magical route or something, but on like fasting for your wife for mm. a period of time. Now, again, that magical route mean like if I do this for six weeks in a row, my wife will. No, no, no. Yeah. You're just seeking the Lord mm-hmm. and you're saying, I can't break through. I'm going to sacrifice this meal just to pray for my wife. And it might, if you're, if you're at work and she wouldn't know otherwise, then all the more, all the better that you're doing it quietly as opposed to again, um, pronouncement against her and things like that. So yeah. con- consider something like that as well. Um, don't stop trying to talk about it, but leading with questions and a good deal it's of good. listening. Mm-hmm. It's really good. Yeah. Prayer this- can be a little bit like, uh, someone's background, Prayer can be manipulative as any religious kind of thing can be manipulative. Mm -hmm. And just making sure, like you said, if you ask the questions, you get the clarity on the background. Maybe there's a fear. Maybe there's just a lacking of words. And I'm Was there something she saw her father do to her mother related to religiosity and demanding Bible reading and Yep. All those things. Mm -hmm. This is just such an opportunity to be to live with your wife, first Peter three, in an understanding way, showing honor to her as the weaker vessel. This question reminded me of one we had a few months ago about um, like a husband really desiring for his wife to be as interested in some of like the more like niche theology topics. Mm -hmm. And so I feel like this 
I thought about that for this question too, mm. that it's okay that you're interested and your wife's not as interested. I think a lot of times women want to know like how it'll change the way you live versus like the things you're just reading about. So good. They want to yep. see it lived out. And so I don't know. That just came to mind. So good. Yeah, it's true. Awesome. All right. Next question. Moving along. Is sports betting a sin? Is working for a sports betting company sinful? Chris, why did you send this question? In? <laughs> Do you have something you want to talk well, about? Because I've been concerned about how much sports betting we're you've not allowed been to doing, say the Scott. names. <laughs> oh gosh! Did you just turn I, it on me? Yes, you turned it on me. This oh, is how my. long we've been working together. Come I can on. see it from a mile away. <laughs> Dish it right oh, back. That's good. Uh, what, what, sport, what sport? What sport would be it? weird to bet on? Uh, I feel like you guys would pick that one. The weird sports? Yeah. Well, like, like the, you can't bet like on that. Horse racing is super popular to bet on. Yeah. Uh, oh, probably yeah. not that weird because it's very, very popular. You can bet on Almost the most anything. mind, like in every football game, there's probably over a hundred possible bets you can make okay. from the score to the score after each quarter to who's going to score first to the total the score. Game. Like the, you know, the math of the, the total score will be 81 right. or right. whatever. It's bizarre how much betting can be I done. I feel like you know a lot about it. Millions. I've, I've heard, <laughs> I've heard too many advertisements. Oh. That's all that it is. Are we going to answer this person's question? Uh, yes, let's answer it. So, um, is it a sin to say it again? Is it a sin to do sports betting? Is sports basically? betting and a sin? And then is it working for? I would yeah. say those are different enough that there may be a differentiated answer in those two. Uh, some nuance of just like, well, if we're going to talk about sports betting, why aren't we talking about betting in, in all kinds of things, right? Mm -hmm. I think that the territory I would go first would be would be foolish before I would immediately pronounce it as sinful mm -hmm. is that so much money is wasted like it is betting and there is a house either in Las Vegas or whatever for a reason because they're going to win overwhelmingly the majority of the time and you're going to lose your money in this endeavor and so if you're going to if you're going to part with money, whether it's ten dollars, twenty dollars, hundreds of dollars, whatever, um, I think you're in the territory of foolishness before mm -hmm. purely it's like this verse would tell you that sports betting specifically is always a sin. Um, I think fantasy football would be one that guys bet on. Not that guys only do it, but largely it is. Uh, people will bet on at the beginning of the year, and then most people lose that money because only one person wins in a league. Mm -hmm. Well, was that sports betting, and was it that I sin in doing that? I would say no, not. Not purely, I would say it's maybe in the realm of foolishness before mm. it's anything else. I would say no, it's not a sin mm -hmm. to participate, to, to make a bet on a sports game. Mm -hmm. uh, the problem with answering that question is the only question is those who are typically, and I don't want to say this about the person because he, he may just have a, he may be asking more about the second question than the first question, but it opens the door to saying, well, if it's not a sin, then might as well just let the horse out of the barn and get going, you know, and all the betting you yep. can be a part of, it doesn't matter because it's not a sin and I, I'm really addicted to this, right? And so it's this idea there, that- therein lies yes, the sinful heart right, going towards that, yeah. that you're now possessed by something, yeah. right? It's not all things are lawful, but not all things are beneficial. Mm -hmm. You should not be enslaved by or to anything other than the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is an area that is addicting. This yeah. is an area- to use that language or enslaving is a probably better the biblical mm -hmm. word of course but that would be my greater concern on this you know someone who plays in a fantasy football league and throws money into a pot you know once a year is there, there should be no reason for that person to think that's sinful as much as somebody would take you know go to a movie or whatever and pay the same amount of money to go do that this is another form of fun that someone could have but this is just a more dangerous form of 
fun in the sense that it can draw you into all mm-hmm. kinds of destructive paths and patterns. To Chris's point, foolishness and then sin is often where this goes. But it's even the same kind of thing as like a, someone asking the drinking question, you know, is drinking right. at all a sin? It's not a sin. And it can be something that, you know, you you can do and still... Um, and, you know, and it'd be faithful to the Lord and not sinful in any way, but it can also have you mm-hmm. and you don't want anything in your life that has you. So that's my bigger concern is worrying about what has your heart and who is this person and how often are they betting and those kind of things? Cause it can be seriously addictive, uh, and dangerous in that yeah. sense. Yeah. So that would be the first answer. And the second question is, is working for a sports betting company sinful? Maybe now that you know that people can become addicted and that you're kind of helping. Facilitating it, yeah. Yeah. But I mean, that's true of a lot of things, though. You Uh, could participate in a lot of things that are okay, that are are dangerous to someone. Like you work for a a company that, you work for Google or something, you know? It's like, well, the internet is a gateway to all kinds of potential sin issues, Mm -hmm. and so do you not work for the internet as a result, you know? Mm -hmm. Nobody works for the internet, for the record. (laughs) The uh, internet. (laughs) Capital T. <laughs> I'm applying at the internet. <laughs> so I just had to. <laughs> uh, that's a that's a really good point. <laughs> I, I think that there's like there's I don't know would just want to jump on the conscience thing. Ah, oh, it's a matter of conscience. Well, if they're asking you to manipulate, mm-hmm. you know, manipulate people and to promote in a way, so there's promoting your brand, promoting the business. There is also a form of promotion that leans into manipulation and and coercion sometimes and I think like somewhere there there needs to be a line that you draw to understand I, I I work for this company I'm not like gonna try to participate in manipulating people to you know many people go bankrupt in, in betting um, it doesn't say it doesn't mean it's your fault that you work somewhere where that happens but I think something in the Christian conscience needs to be there's a there's a liberty to do so I believe without their without it like being just to your point don't even think don't even think twice about it no seek the Lord in prayer on this. Yeah. Like, what are your motives for doing so? What are they expecting you to do? Um, there are very harmless businesses that you could go to work for with shady people at the top of those otherwise harmless businesses that would you would end up feeling like you're sinning being a part of this unethical business. It's not sports betting. It's mm-hmm. something otherwise that's totally fine and normal, and yet you got to watch out who you're working for all the time, what they're asking you to do. Mm-hmm. And it and it could be uh, to your conscience point. If your conscience is violated based on the work you would be doing, I wouldn't do it. That there you go. That's the yeah. expanded principle. Yeah, just don't do it. Right. Yeah. But th- I'm sure there's a possibility of having a job that wouldn't be overtly sinful to have, even though what you do, which is a form of entertainment, isn't you know necessarily bad in that context like you're not manipulating people you're not drawing doing something shady to get people's business or whatever so but if this is a conscience question then mm-hmm. i would i would take the time i would d- dig deep and if you're going i shouldn't i shouldn't and it hangs on this i i wouldn't do it anyway regardless of our answer yeah that's good hopefully you feel relieved chris you don't have to do it anymore <laughs> i was just about to get my phone out and uh, delete all the apps but i'm good now thanks guys good good okay moving on uh, this one has a few questions wrapped up in here. How should tithing be approached for a married couple if the woman attends church and the husband does not? 
Would it be appropriate if the woman has a job outside of the home to tithe from her income? What if the husband did not approve of her tithing? Mm. Okay, so there's a lot there. The first question was... How should tithing be approached uh, for a married couple if the woman goes to church? And the, Well, there was two questions. Yeah. I was going to stop the very first yeah. one and just say simply together, okay? Mm-hmm. <laughs> How should it be approached? It should be approached Got together. It. Then from there we go on to the more complicated and right. nuanced ones. Right. Uh, she didn't say a non-Christian husband, but a husband... Well, I think it was a she, right? Because mm-hmm. she's referencing... Well, she mentioned a, unbeliever. Is that right? No. No, no. did not. Just no. he doesn't go to church. Right. Which we may we may very Got well it. infer not a believer. That I'm automatically translating that to unbeliever, but there's but obviously is, Christians that don't go to church. It's just sure. And sure. but if he's putting his foot down on the giving thing, I would lean probably into either very, very wayward and immature understanding regarding why she wants to do this, or more more likely married to an unbeliever. So I think we should probably just Pick one and answer it that way. I think you uh, picked the one yeah, that... You're married to an unbeliever, mm-hmm. uh, and he doesn't go to church, doesn't want to give to the church. Um, first and foremost, just compassion to the situation because mm-hmm. it's a sad one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's not ideal. Obviously, you, yeah. you wouldn't want uh, to be in that circumstance. Uh, we Our heart goes out to this individual, um, and it can be complex when you're in... Uh, a divided home from a Christian perspective, this can be complex. And so there's a whole lot of things woven within this that can even undermine the foundation of the marriage or can really lay heavy on the guilt of the wife if she is forbidden from giving and now feels like she's disobeying God because right. she's can't, she can't do two at the same time, can't obey my husband who doesn't want to be any, have any part of that and trying to you know commit to oneness with him and at the same time, you know, if I don't give, then I'm sinning against the Lord. And so it's a complicated situation. And I, I would, as much as you can, seek to be united in the home. Mm-hmm. You know, um, I, I do understand the principle, especially if you're working two separate jobs, whereas you have an income and, and your husband has an income that you would seemingly have a right to be able to do with what you make, what you want to do. But I... I would want to try to make that as clearly communicated and streamlined within the home as possible, helping him to understand that piece of it. And I would still lean towards trying to set up biblical patterns for your life, even if he doesn't like those biblical patterns and do your best to in every other way that there are appropriate means of trying to get to a common ground with an unbeliever. Just being willing to do that, not sticking your stake in the ground for every single issue, but instead going, here are some things about my life as a believer that I am committed to, and I have a job Mm -hmm. that I am committed to outside of you working. So it's not like your specific money, even though, of course, in the home, you never would counsel someone in a premarital to have separate accounts, or very rarely would you ever do that. You would want them to pool their money together in this scenario I get it. And it it can be a situation where you set up these boundaries. Hey, I know you don't like maybe when I read the Bible or I know you don't like when we pray or I pray or I know you don't like when I go to church because that leaves you home by yourself on a Sunday or I serve in the afternoon and so it's the whole day or whatever. But I wouldn't stop doing those things that you feel committed to as a Christian just because they're upset about those things. I would just try to limit the things he's upset about to those Christian Mm -hmm. convictions Mm -hmm. that should be in your life. And, uh, and certainly just understanding and me answering that question, 
I don't want it to seem like um, if that's not the way this goes, you're being unfaithful. Mm-hmm. And we would be glad if this is someone that's walking in this actually to to follow up more specifically yeah, to the situation right. because, you know, I, it's, sometimes it's, it's hard to answer a question on here when it's serious and I can almost feel the weight of it right. without knowing the person and sitting in the room with them and figuring right. out their actual scenario. Mm-hmm. That's good. Yeah. All right. Thanks, guys. Last question for today. When Lazarus was dead for three days, where did he go? Was he in heaven? Wouldn't he be extremely disappointed to come back to earth? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> On that last one, for sure. Yeah. <laughs> I don't believe there's any reference of where Lazarus goes outside. There's a passage in Luke 16 that we could go to and talk about. Okay. Um, and Ah, the Abraham's bosom? Yes. But this is... feels weird saying that, but that's okay. It's okay. It's in Scripture. It's in the Scripture. So yeah. Abraham's bosom. Have no shame, it's Chris. A me- it's a metaphor. Yeah. Right. Well, Thank or you. it was a... I mean, was it a metaphor? Or was it a real place? We'll have to ask later. Yeah. So... Um, ask God later? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Got it. The, there, there's also... It's an interesting, interesting thing because we don't see where Lazarus goes, we have a theology that helps us understand what happens when a believer dies and departs, that there's this going to be with the Lord, right? But we don't see that process taking place in explicit language about Lazarus in general. Um, And I would also say um, there's a difference between like resurrection and revivification, which he's a revivification is reliving again. Versus resurrection is like unto eternal life, resurrection life, resurrection body, that kind of idea, that being the trajectory. And I and I think um, Lazarus falls into more of a revivification. Um, so those days in between, we're not getting clarity. I wouldn't I wouldn't adopt new theology for that. But I would simply also say that was a unique moment in redemptive history to illustrate a. a spiritual reality that Jesus Christ is the life and the resurrection, right? Mm-hmm. And um, and so for that scenario, it stands out as being unique. And so principally, I don't think the point is to know necessarily all those details, but to understand the power mm-hmm. behind Jesus and, and doing the miracle mm-hmm. in the first place of raising him from the dead. That's good. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think we just need to be cautious to not go farther than we really can. It, it's 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 a speculative question, and it's actually kind of a fun speculative question. Mm-hmm. But to limit ourselves to saying too much more than we do know, and just realizing that quite quite truly, uh, I do believe we'll, we'll get the opportunity to find out one day. Yeah. Uh, and and how how the, the stack of interesting questions that you would be able to draw from the scriptures of who oh I can't wait to talk to this person I want to find out what that was like I want to ask God a question about something um, not not to be coy about it you know I mean ultimately this is going to be about being with God this is our eternal reward is being in His presence forever with with Him in glory and yet I, I do think that um, in eternity it's not ridiculous to think we'll be able to ask that question mm-hmm. right it'll be a fascinating one to find out but it's not one that we can have certainty about yeah. right so I came to Luke 16 it, it I'm pretty sure with this scenario the Lazarus in the story it's more to see what happens and what takes place in the story so 
you see it playing out. There's a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus covered with sores who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. So just talking about this like expression of something is taking place here upon the moment of death, and that's what I was getting at in, mm-hmm. in addressing this passage. The rich man also died and was buried, and in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame." But Abraham said, child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. And so there's two different destinations that are playing out at the moment of death that's being expressed that I wouldn't want to venture outside of in terms of trying to understand what happened to Lazarus, but that when the Lord calls you forth and sovereignly sees fit to ordain that you be brought back to life, that's what takes place. And so what I would say is, isn't that a bummer? I would say anytime you are fulfilling a in obedience to the Lord's ordained will, his will, you are celebrating that. So that role uh, may mean that that short stint was uh, ended quickly, but only because you were literally walking out, fleshing out the will of God in Jesus raising him from the dead to display his power. Mm -hmm. So anytime we get to be a part of something like that, we celebrate that reality. So let it be that God's will be fulfilled in my life, whether by life or by death. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the truth of the joy and glory of heaven is that heaven with the Lord is a place where his will is obeyed and thus joy and fullness of life and satisfaction is had because that is the desire Mm. from the heart of all of God's people. And therefore, whatever the Lord um, calls us to next and we get to participate in, we rejoice in that opportunity. So what he knew about that, you know, what Lazarus knew about that, it doesn't get into the details of it. Yeah. What the text wants us to know is Jesus Christ has the power to raise people from the dead. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. All right. Well, thank you guys um, for answering these questions. And thank you uh, listeners for joining us. If you'd like to submit a question of your own, please do so by visiting our website at doxachurch.net. Hit the resources tab and you will find the form to fill out to submit a question of your own. Until next time. You've been listening to Doxologic, a podcast by Doxa Church in Rockland, California. To learn more, visit doxachurch.net.